Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn them to John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 19. John chapter 19, beginning at the end of verse 16 and through to verse 37. These are the words of God. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but rather This man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things 
took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we come before you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would teach us, O Lord. We pray for those who have come and gathered here this morning that you would cause us to have soft hearts and open ears to your word. May we see and behold the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Lord, as well this morning we pray for and we think about those who are not gathered with us, those who are at home, those who are sick, Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort to them, bring healing to them. As they long to be with us, Lord, may you bless that longing, that desire that you put in your people to gather together with them on a regular basis and praise your name. We thank you for that, Lord. Now, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would cause it to bring our hearts closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake, amen. So we come finally, we've been in John for over two years, we finally come to the point of the gospel story, which is central to our faith, central to the Christian faith. It's that which Jesus spoke of earlier in John as the culmination of his work, of his mission, why he came to this earth of his incarnation, what he came for to glorify his father and to save his people. Remember what he said all the way back in chapter three to Nicodemus, the Pharisee. He said in chapter three, verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All throughout John, we've had these hints of what is going to take place, what is going to happen. Jesus himself has said these things, that he must be lifted up. Or think of chapter 10. We mentioned this last week when he talked about being the good shepherd of his sheep. And what does he say about that? He says, I'm going to lay my life down for the sake of the sheep that I might give them eternal life again. All of Christ's earthly ministry, all of Jesus' earthly ministry then led up to this point, this point of the story that I just read, the crucifixion. And John has made sure that that his readers see it this way. He's made sure that in all of these events that led up to Christ's death, that we would not see or think of Jesus as a helpless or unwilling victim of the actions, the terrible actions of man. No, our Savior knew what was before him. John has told us that many times. And he willingly, in many ways, he's shown us that Jesus willingly endured the injustice of man, knowing that it was actually the will of his heavenly Father that he die in the place of sinners and for their sins. This continues to be one of John's concerns then as he relates what happens to Jesus as Jesus is led to that hill outside of Jerusalem that we call Calvary or Golgotha, and is placed upon the cross. It was no accident. John wants us to know it was in fulfillment of the Messiah's mission. This happened in the fulfillment of the Messiah's mission. You remember, we've said many times, John's aim in this gospel, in writing this gospel, is to bring his readers to faith in Christ 
as the Son of God, as the Messiah and the Son of God. This is true of the whole gospel, and it's true of the crucifixion account. The the, the response that he wants from us as we read this account, the primary response that he wants is faith, is belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior, the one who died for our sins. Now, maybe you notice this, but John hardly gets into any of the gruesome details of the crucifixion. He hardly gets into any of of that stuff that sometimes preachers will go into, expositors of the scripture, commentators will go into explaining what all happened when a man was crucified. John John hardly does any of that, informing us of of the effects of the, the bone and the metal shards that were on the whips and how they would have ripped off the flesh of Jesus' back and what that would have done when he was placed upon the wooden cross and then the nails driven through his flesh. The excruciating, excruciating pain right, that Jesus would have felt every time he had to lift himself up in order to get a breath. You know, that's what ended up happening to a lot of the victims of, on the cross as they died of asphyxiation. They, they no longer had the strength to pick themselves up enough to get a breath. John doesn't go into any of that. As a matter of fact, none of the gospel writers do. Have you ever thought about that? Now, I think partly we could say, well, John probably doesn't do that because his original audience would have been very familiar with crucifixion. They didn't need the gruesome details. When they read the crucifixion account of Jesus, they knew what all physical torture came with it. But I think there's a more fundamental reason that John doesn't go into the physical torment of the cross. And that's because John's intent is not to invoke your pity. John's intent isn't to invoke horror within you or sorrow within you at the thought of Christ on the cross. Rather, his intent is to invoke faith. His intent is to show his readers that the very death of Jesus Christ, the very, de- the, the very story in all of its details of the crucifixion of Christ demonstrated him to be the Davidic king, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and the Son of God. Far from disproving the claims of Jesus that he was the Christ and the Son of God, the crucifixion did not disprove it. Actually, as it played out, it served as further proof of Christ's identity and Christ's mission. And we're going to see that this morning. So we're going to look at how John does this. What details does John highlight and why? What details does John highlight and why? What significance do these details carry? Well, our first detail is the sign that declared the truth. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
So John tells us, first of all, what happened with this sign and Pilate making this sign and placing it on the cross above Jesus because it happened. It's the first reason why John includes this, because he's telling us what happened. But we might ask why John chose to include this detail in his account. We know from from the other accounts, the other gospel accounts, there were many other things that happened during the crucifixion that that John didn't include. So why does he mention this detail of Pilate having the sign made and, and put on the cross? Well, the practice was, was fairly common. This was the practice of the, the, the Romans when they crucified someone to place their crime, they, to, to put on a plaque, a sign what their crime was and place it above the victim. And that way, one, it would notify people why they were being crucified. What was this man's crime? What did he do so terrible to deserve this? But then secondly, it not only notified people, but it deterred people. It deterred people from doing that thing. So you, you were alive during the, the Roman rule, Roman Empire, and you would approach a city like Jerusalem and you'd come up to the hill right outside of Jerusalem and you would see these men on, on these crosses and you would read, murderer, insurrectionist. And what was Rome saying? Rome was saying, this is how we deal with people like that. You don't want to be one of those. And it was very effective. Now, in the case of Jesus, what's interesting is that Pilate doesn't write what everyone expected him to write. He doesn't write what, especially what the Jews expected him to write. He didn't write, this man claimed to be a king, or here hangs an insurrectionist, a rebel of Rome, beware, don't be like that. Instead, perhaps out of a desire to really stick it to the Jews because Pilate did not like them, he wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, who he was, everyone could see, who is this man hanging up there. This is Jesus of Nazareth. And what did he do? What is he? He's the king of the Jews. And Pilate, to add insult to injury to the Jews, wrote it in three languages, the three major languages of the day. Aramaic, which would have been the language of the Judeans. Latin, which was the official language of of Rome. And then Greek, which was the common language of the empire. So whoever walked by, whatever language they spoke, pretty much, they would be able to read this. And that sign was announcing, here is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And why John brings it into his account is because he wants us to see the irony of it. Even if it was out of spite, Pilate here in the crucifixion of Jesus is announcing the truth it wasn't accident, it was, it was not accidental that this happened. It was not by accident. It was not a mere coincidence. And by the way, unlike our modern culture, John's Jewish readers wouldn't have been so prone to explain things away by just claiming it was mere coincidence. So John is presenting this to his readers as a sign. It wasn't just Pilate's sign by Pilate's determination, but it was by the hand of God 
The sovereign hand of God that when his son was crucified for the sins of his people, the truth would be written for all to read, all passerbyers to read. This is Jesus of Nazareth, who is the king of the Jews, understood in the context of the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah of God. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah of God. He's the long-awaited and promised son of David, savior of Israel. Now that brings us to detail number two. The soldiers dividing his garments. Look at verse 23 with me. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now as we're going to see, this is one of the many times that John points out something that happened during the crucifixion that was, as he says, in fulfillment of the scripture. Here John tells us about the soldiers dividing Christ's garments and casting lots then for his tunic. And he points to this as the fulfillment of King David's words in Psalm 22 about his enemies doing the very same thing to him. Look at Psalm 22, 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now, we might look at this and we might um, wonder what, what point this proved. Because at face value, this psalm doesn't exactly sound prophetic. You know, for example, David doesn't say, and this will happen to the Messiah. They will do this to the Messiah. But that's to miss how John is coming at it and how the Jew, first century Jew, would have seen it. The fulfillment here that John's talking about is one of typology. David, King David, as the type of Christ, said these things, and he went through these things, foreshadowing what the Messiah himself would go through. The promised Messiah, you see, was to be the son of David. He was to be a king born in the line of David who would be like David, but even greater than David. And therefore, the link between Jesus and David here shows Jesus to be David's son, the promised Messiah. In other words, what John's saying is, look what happened to Jesus when he was unjustly condemned by evil men. What happened? They pierced his hands and feet, and they stripped him of his garments and cast lot for his clothing just like they did to David, just as David recorded concerning himself. On the cross, Jesus was shown to be, John is saying, Jesus was shown to be the son of David. And listen, this was, this was powerful in more than just one way. Because one of the, one of the dilemmas that the, the, the Jews had, the first century Jew had in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, or Jesus as the Christ, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, was this. If he was the Messiah of God, if he was the son of David, the promised son of David, the coming king, the one who was going to be greater than David, how could God allow him to suffer unjustly? You see? 
If he was the Messiah, surely he would not have been, have not have suffered like this. Surely his affliction meant he wasn't God's anointed, God's anointed, God's Messiah, the son of David, the one who would come in victory over his enemies. Why? Because of his sufferings on the cross. But you see, Psalm 22 is telling a different story. It's not only telling a different story, listen, it's not only telling a different story about David, but it's telling a different story about David's son. It begins, Psalm 22, if you don't know this already, Psalm 22, there's another line that's quoted during the crucifixion. It's Jesus who quotes the line from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how Psalm 22 starts out. And it goes through the agony and the suffering of David at the hands of his enemies. It paints the picture, Psalm 22 paints the picture of God's anointed king as the innocent and righteous sufferer. He's God's anointed king, yet, and he's innocent, yet he is a righteous sufferer. And in the end, he is delivered by God, but that was not before God allowed him to go through great and terrible affliction. And here, in the action of the soldiers, John reveals what's happening to Jesus is not in contradiction to the messianic role, but it's actually in fulfillment of it. Jesus is, as David was, the truly righteous sufferer. He was encircled and encompassed by evildoers like David was. He was gloated over like David was, and they cast lots for his clothing, just like they did with David. There's the Davidic king, John is saying. Now, detail number three, his final words on the cross. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Again, John draws his reader's attention to a detail that may have seemed insignificant, and he says, this happened to fulfill the scripture. On the cross, before he died, Jesus said, I thirst. And then we're told that someone, presumably one of the soldiers, gives him a drink of sour wine that was, was in a sponge. This was basically sour wine. This was wine that was, it was cheap wine, and it was commonly used in the place of water or vinegar wine. It was used commonly just to quench thirst. Now, John doesn't cite an Old Testament passage for us, but it's likely here that he's referring to Psalm 69. This is another Psalm of David where he is in distress and he experiences the unwarranted hatred of men. David says in Psalm 69, verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Verse 9, the reproaches of those who reproach you, God, have fallen on me. And in that same psalm in verse 3, David says, I'm weary with my crying out and my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. 
And in verse 21, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. The significance again is that on the cross, Jesus was fulfilling the Davidic role of the righteous sufferer, just as men hated David without cause, so it was with his son, the Messiah. And as David's oppressors gave him sour wine to drink, so our Lord upon the cross received sour wine from his oppressors. And when he did, John tells us that he cried out on the cross, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In other words, his death on the cross had a purpose. As he told his disciples in chapter 10 that he would lay his life down for the sake of the sheep and that he would do so for, of his own accord. We're seeing that play out here before us. It wasn't an unfortunate and unforeseen end to the story. John does not want to, us to see it that way. No, there are so many hints that tell us Jesus surrendered himself. Even in the phrase, he gave up his spirit. He surrendered himself, and in so doing, he said, it is finished. Or, in other words, another way to say that is, it is completed. It is accomplished. The mission that the Father had given to him, it was not for nothing that he died. No, he said on the cross before he gave up his spirit, it is accomplished, it is finished. He accomplished the mission for which his father had given to him. Now, if time allowed, we could dive into the vast significance of that short little phrase, it is finished. But for our purposes today, it's sufficient to say that John means for his readers to understand that upon the cross and by the cross, Jesus accomplished or completed his purpose the reason for which he came, his mission to die as a ransom for many, to lay down his life for the sheep, to glorify the Father, and to once and for all put away the sins of those who call upon his name and give them eternal life. Now then we come to de detail number four, his bones not being broken. Look at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, and they, they, that he was already dead they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, what you need to know is the normal practice of the Romans was to just leave the bodies hang on the cross, to leave their victims on the cross until they died that excruciating death, and sometimes that would take a whole day. Sometimes it lasted a long time. That's why they, they would put little... Um, Little, uh, a little stand underneath their feet to help them lift themselves up to breathe, not because they were being nicer, but because they knew it would prolong their suffering. The Romans would just leave them there until they died, and then after they died, the common practice was just to leave the bodies, to hang there for days. You can imagine this was part of, 
of the shame of it all, not just for the one who was crucified, but for the family and the friends of the one who was crucified, that your body would just hang there. It would remain on display after you died and be picked at by vultures and would be exposed to the elements. So why, why was it that the Jews came and asked Pilate to break the legs of the crucified victims so they'd be taken away? Did they feel at this point some kind of um, regret for what they had done? No, actually, the reason why, the answer lies in the Old Testament. According to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 21, 22, to allow bodies of hanged criminals on a tree to remain on that tree overnight was to defile the land. And so you see the Romans didn't have any issue with it, but it was the Jews who did, and um, more precisely, the priests and the Pharisees, especially because the next day was the Sabbath and the Passover Sabbath at that. And that being the case, they were even more concerned that the bodies would be taken down from the crosses. But before the Romans could take the bodies down, the soldiers had to make sure their victims were dead. If they were not dead, the way the Romans dealt with that, if they wanted to take down the bodies before they died, or if they wanted to quicken the victim's death, they would break their legs. You say, well, why, what does that matter, breaking their legs? Well, breaking their legs meant it was that much harder for them to lift themselves up to get a breath. And now they're just reliant on their arms. And they couldn't push up on that little pedestal underneath their feet. And they would soon die of asphyxiation. Well, John tells us that the soldiers went to break the legs of the men who were crucified. And they went to first to the ones who were on the sides of Jesus and they broke their legs. But then when they came to Jesus, they saw that Jesus was already dead. Romans knew what it looked like when a man was dead, by the way. But just to make sure, just for good measure, one of the Roman soldiers takes his spear and he pierces the side of our Lord with his spear. And John tells us that blood and water flow from his side. And then he says in verse 36, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. It seems that again, John is referring back to a Psalm of David. And in this Psalm, David is praising the Lord for delivering him from his enemies. Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now, we might wonder how this applies to Jesus on the cross. His legs may may not have been broken. His arms, God may have providentially saved him from any of his bones being broken. But how could we say that God delivered him like he delivered David? Now, perhaps there's more to this than just deliverance from death because in, in the resurrection, Jesus was delivered from death, right? Yet, he still had to die. Yet, he still did die. And the Father let him die. And in his death, not one of his bones were broken. But how does that matter? Well, I think it's more than the words of David in Psalm 34. I think it goes back further than David. 
I think John is getting at something, another type. A type of the Messiah that, that preceded David, a type that would shed light on how it could be that the long-awaited Messiah came to die. Can you guess what it is? Well, John the Baptist gave us a hint at the beginning. Do you remember what he said, John the Baptist, in chapter 1? When he saw Jesus, what did he say? He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so you realize, well, at least you ought to realize by now, have realized by now, it was no coincidence that Jesus was crucified during Passover. It's amazing when you think about it. John makes it very clear, by the way. There's no question, none of the readers, you know, there's nothing, John's not putting this in the background. His readers know that when all of this is happening, all of this is happening during the Passover feast. Why are the chief priests concerned about not entering into Pilate's house? Because of the Passover feast. Why are they worried about the bodies on the cross? Because the next day is the Sabbath and the Passover Sabbath. What happened to Passover? Well, Passover was a celebration of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And how did he save them? It was actually, it was actually through judgment and substitution that, that God saved his people. The Passover is all about God's judgment and substitution. His salvation of his people through judgment and substitution. The final plague in Egypt, you remember, was the death of the firstborn son. In every single household, Yet how would God's people be delivered from his judgment, his wrath? Well, he gave Israel instructions. He gave them, in, them instructions to avert his wrath, instructions to kill a spotless lamb, to eat its flesh and to place its blood on the doorposts of their houses. And when God's judgment came that night, the angel of the Lord would pass over every single house that was covered by the blood of the lamb. And I said substitution because the lamb died in the place of the firstborn son. It was the one for the other. And here's the connection. In Exodus, the Israelites were instructed to slaughter the Passover lamb, but they were instructed to make sure not to break any one of its bones. Exodus 12, 47, it shall be eaten in one house and you shall not break any of its bones. And just so the, the lamb of God that comes to take... The sins of the world, he comes, and on Passover, he is slaughtered like the Passover lamb, and in typological significance, not one of his bones were broken. Why? Because his death was the fulfillment of the Passover story itself. It was by this lamb, it was by the lamb, not of man, but the lamb of God, that the judgment of God was averted and his salvation was granted to his people, and they were delivered. Now we have one more detail. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. It's fairly, this one's fairly plain, that John is quoting the prophet Zechariah here when he says that what happened to Jesus was in fulfillment of the scripture, they will look on him 
whom they have pierced. The prophecy is found in Zechariah chapter 12, where the prophet, who is, by the way, speaking about 500 years before the coming of Christ, foretells Israel, God's people, of a time when God will restore his people. He will extend his grace and mercy to his people. And starting in verse 10, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for only a child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. What's so interesting about this prophecy, if you pay attention, if you look real carefully, who's being pierced? Yahweh speaks to his people and he says, he says of himself, they will look on me, him whom they have pierced. Yahweh speaks of himself as being the one who will be pierced. They will look on him and they will mourn, but how will it be that man will pierce God? Now somebody might come along at this point and they might argue, well, maybe that Hebrew word there for pierce isn't to be understood as a physical piercing. But that Hebrew word in all of its occurrences in the Old Testament is used in a concrete sense of being stabbed or pierced. So how could God be pierced so that his people look upon him and mourn? Well, John is revealing the mystery to us, the answer in one word, the incarnation. It's Yahweh in flesh, Jesus Christ, who was pierced for our transgressions. He's the one who is truly God and truly man, who was born in the lineage of David, yet was, remember John 1.1, in the beginning with God and in the beginning was God. And in his death, the meaning of this prophecy is revealed and fulfilled. He was the Messiah and he was the divine son of God who willingly gave up his life and who was pierced for us pierced for our transgressions, as Isaiah 53 tells us. Now this detail, just like all the others that John records, was no insignificant coincidence. His bones were not broken and he was pierced just as Yahweh had said he would be. And what then does the prophet Zechariah say will happen on that day that he is pierced? Well, only a few verses later, the prophet says this, Zechariah 13.1, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit of God, explains all of these things like this, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Then down to verse eight. When he said above, you have not desired, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, who added Jesus, Christ added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Whose will? The Father's will. 
He does away with the first, the Old Testament sacrificial law, in order to establish the second, his Father's will. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ is the fountain that Zechariah spoke of from which the healing waters flowed to God's people. Upon the cross he offered, as Hebrews says, for all time, the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of his people. And John records this account as he says in verse 35, why? So that we might believe. And as he says at the end of chapter 20, that by believing, we might have life in his name. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, there are many concerns that we may have come in with this morning. There are many things that maybe perhaps were on our minds um, that we thought we might need to hear this morning. But Lord, sometimes as we see in what your word proclaimed to us this morning, in John's intent, in relating to us the crucifixion of Christ, sometimes we see that what we most need is just to put our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes, Lord, we want to know what you want us to do, and the best thing for us to be reminded of is what you've done for us on the cross. So I pray, Lord, that we would go out, everyone would go out of here this morning, not doubting, but believing that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that he died upon the cross for our sins, and he did so that we might have life and life in his name. Help us to keep our eyes fixed upon him, Lord, as we go through the rest of our week, as we struggle with some of the things that we struggle with, Lord, help us to remember who you are and what you've done for us. And may that wonderful gospel truth of Christ upon the cross for us spur us on to love you in both our hearts, our minds, and with our hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.